All right, with that, let's pray. We'll get to the message for the day. Father, today, uh, ask that you take your word and use it in our minds and hearts to change us and challenge us and move us forward and to knowing you and understanding what it means to live for you. So spirit come, take your word, enliven it in our hearts, take these words that I've prepared and use them um, in all of us, God. That is our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to get into it today because today is one of those days where Jesus must have known it was going to be Father's Day for this sermon because he is bringing some LeBron James Game 6 type intensity to this message this morning. And, and Paul already mentioned it, but by the way, Game 7 tonight, uh, I know some of you don't care, <coughs> Pastor Matt, but uh, others of you do, and I, I'm interested, how many Warriors fans tonight? How many Warriors? All right. How many Cavaliers fans? Okay. All right. And there's lots of you who didn't raise your hand and you just don't care at all, which is probably okay. Um, But I was reading an article yesterday that StubHub set a new record for the sale price of a single ticket selling courtside for tonight's game. $50,000. Fifty thousand dollars someone paid to watch a basketball game this evening, and I have to say that is exactly why the message that Jesus offers us this morning is so very relevant to all of us who live in this society. Uh, because even though I'm assuming no one in here is the fifty thousand dollar purchaser, we are all, whether we realize it or not, influenced by this world that says. Our values and status and money and position and achievement is what makes us who we are, is what gives us value and significance in this world over and above the grace and mercy of God. We live in a world where where the current is constantly pulling us towards, if you're sitting courtside at the game, then you must be somebody. That's what the world says. That's what the world offers. And what Jesus will talk with us about today is having a heart that values the grace of God. That says, my value comes from the grace of God, not from anything this world has to offer. Having a heart that values the grace of God. There's going to be three parts to our message this morning. Determining what our hearts actually value. Asking some hard questions of ourselves about that. Second, considering where our values are leading us, where they will take us, and then finally understanding how our values can truly change. How they can be formed and shaped into the kind of values that God longs for us to have. Luke chapter 16, we continue our red letter series right out of the mouth of Jesus himself. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was... A rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So right from the beginning, as Jesus launches into this story, this parable, we have two characters. And in just two short sentences, Jesus masterfully describes them for us In stark contrast, the rich man is extravagantly rich, lavishly rich. Clothes in the ancient world only became purple through a very rare and expensive dye that was harvested from a shellfish called a murex. 
Not easy to find this dye. They did not have synthetic dye back then. And so if you were a person who wore purple, that meant you were loaded. And in the Greek, this opening sentence literally reads this way. He habitually dressed in purple. Like, there were no casual Fridays for this guy. He was always in Armani. Jesus also mentions here fine linens. And what's he talking about when he says that the man also has fine linens? Does anyone know? He's talking about his undergarment. He's he's talking about the guy's underwear. Interesting fact, most people in the ancient world did not wear underwear. Underwear was not a common thing. It did not show up until a much later point in history. And so this guy, not only does he have an undergarment, not only is he wearing underwear, it's of fine linen. Most scholars believe probably the best and finest linen of the day, Egyptian soft cotton. See, this guy, he's wearing Hanes Premium and he is dressed for success. That's who he is. And now we come to character number two. He couldn't be more opposite. He is on the other end of society. He's a beggar. The Greek word for laid is the word balo, which means thrown down or discarded. He's probably paralyzed, most likely handicapped in some way, and he's been discarded at the gate of this rich man to beg. Filling out the image even more are the sores all over his body. And then the most striking fact... Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, we kind of tend to think, you know, well, at least he had some company. You know, he's there by the gate all by himself. You know, man's best friend. I mean, it's kind of nasty there licking his sores, but at least he's there with someone. Friends, dogs in the ancient world were grimy, scavenging street dwellers, and they were considered filthy, dirty, and revolting. I, I dare say this. A parallel in our day, a parallel animal would be rats. They thought of dogs the way we think of rats. And not Cinderella or Ratatouille rats where they come and make you clothes or serve you fine dishes of food. What Jesus' listeners would have heard here, what they would have imagined as Jesus tells this story, is a man so low, so destitute, that a pack of dirty, mangy rodents surrounded him, licking and gnawing on his raw and oozing flesh. That's the picture Jesus paints because he wants you to know how low, just how low this guy is. He's about as far away from courtside seats as you can possibly be. Status, fame, reputation, position, popularity, success, all the things we use to determine a person's value in this world, he's got none of it. Zero, zip, zilch. So there we have it, our contrast. The rich man and this beggar. And the contrast couldn't be greater. Except, perhaps we have missed the most striking contrast of all. The contrast that Jesus' listeners would have picked up on right away. And that's this. One of these guys has a name and the other doesn't. And furthermore, it's not the guy you'd expect. In fact, this poor beggar is the only person in any of Jesus' parallels to ever be given 
a name. Every other time, in every other parable Jesus tells, it's a sower, a shepherd, a man, a woman, a Samaritan. But never do the characters of Jesus' parables get names until now. And here's the point. According to the world, this guy, this beggar is nothing. He's no one. He's insignificant. He's invisible. No one knows his name. When people talked about him, they talked about the guy that lays at the gate of so-and-so. Right? No one knows who he is. But in the eyes of God, he's not invisible at all. He's known. He's loved. He has a name. And his name is Lazarus. Lazarus. Now, we have to remember that in the ancient world, unlike in our world, a person's name and what it meant was extremely significant. And Lazarus is a name that means this. God is my help. God is my strength. God is the ultimate thing I seek, lean on, rely on to give me value. And we compare him, this Guy who gets his value from God, who has the values of God. We compare him with who? A rich man. You see, the reason the rich man doesn't have a name is that's all he is. He has placed so much of his value and significance on his wealth, on the status that it gives him, that he's a rich man Or he's nothing. Lazarus is here. He's defined by God's grace. His value comes from the Lord. But this rich man, this rich man is defined by, gets his value simply from his wealth. Now, let me pause and ask a question here. Is this a story about money? What do you think? Is this story, just take, in your mind, just take a guess, 50-50 chance here. Is this story about money, yes or no? no? Well, no matter what you said, you're right. No, it's not, but yes, it is. Let me explain. There's nothing inherently wrong, first of all, I'll say this, with having money or even being rich. The Bible says this. The Bible says, enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you've been given. But if you have money... Be real careful not to put your hope, not to find your value in it. It's good to have money. It's okay to have money. It's okay to have a lot of money as long as it doesn't become an idol. It doesn't become this thing that gives you value and meaning and significance. I told this in 1 Timothy. This story, friends, is not about just money. The story, hear this, is about anything your heart is tempted to value more than God and His grace. For this guy, it's his money, or maybe the status that it gives him. For you, maybe it's success, or reputation, or being liked, or looking good, or being a great mom, or people thinking you're smart, or having stuff, or having fun, or being good at a particular thing. Fill in the blank here with whatever your heart is tempted to rely on for value, and that's what this story is about for you. So the story is not just about money, but at the same time, money is clearly part of this story, and here's why. It is very difficult for people. No, scratch that. It is very difficult for us to see what our hearts truly value. In fact, the Bible says that we are masters of self-value. 
deception. We are masters at fooling ourselves, tricking ourselves, convincing our brains that we value things that in fact we really actually don't. And money, money shows up in this story because it is attached to our hearts in such a way that if we look at how we spend it, we actually get an objective view into what our hearts truly value. You see, money helps us become less deceived, less self-deceived about where we get our value. You can say, friends, you can say you value a lot of things. You can even really believe you value God above all. That's what the Pharisees said. That's what they believed. That's how this entire story gets launched back in verse 14. The Pharisees are like, we're all this. We believe in God. And Jesus says, you're lovers of money. I can see what your hearts really value. I can see what you truly value in your lives because of your money. You see, you can tell yourself that you value all sorts of stuff, but here's what Jesus says in reply. Follow the money trail. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to see what you really value in your heart, in your heart of hearts, deep down where it really counts? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So first question this morning is simply this. Where is your heart today? Where is it searching for value? What does your life, what does your money tell you? Let me ask it this way. Same question in a different way. Do you have a name? Or are you just a something? A mother, a father, a pastor, a successful business person, the smart kid, an athlete, a devout churchgoer. Are you just an artist, a musician? You see, friends, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with being an artist or a musician. There's nothing wrong with being successful or liked. But if it's the main thing, if it's where you get your value, if you rely on that thing to define you, if the truth is, if you didn't have that thing, then you wouldn't know who you are. Then maybe you're more like this rich man than you thought. Friends, determine what your heart is tempted to value above God's grace. Seek out. Dig deep. Ask yourself and those around you, what is it that I rely on to make me me other than God? What's competing with God to give my life value? It's an important question because next Jesus will ask us to consider this. Where those values are leading us. Where is what we truly value, what we rely on to gain value in our lives? Where is that taking us? Where is that leading our lives? Where is that directing our path, our course, our eternity? Friends, understand this amazing truth. This right here, this will change your life if you grasp it. If God is where your heart truly finds its value, then no matter what happens to you, you will still be you. Lose all your money, Your health fails you, your friends and family abandon you, end up as low and degraded as even this beggar with oozing, seeping, sopping sores licked by dogs. If God is what you are relying on to give you value, you will still, even in any of those circumstances, be you. You will be valuable even then. Even when the world says you're nothing. 
you'll still be valuable if your value is based on the Lord. But if your identity, your value is wrapped up in something of this world, then you are always at risk of not just losing that thing, but losing your very self. Losing your value. One one scholar I read this week says it this way. If you build your identity, your value on anything but God, and something jeopardizes that thing, or something goes wrong in that area, you're not just unhappy, there's no you. That means you don't feel valuable. You don't know what you're living for. You don't even know who you are. And so in that moment, you're forced to cling and fight for that which has come to define you. You ever bump up against somebody and they just get super defensive? They just, like, they're super possessive. They're super defensive. They're super, like, territorial about something. Chances are you've challenged something that doesn't just, it's not just something about them. It's something that's central to them. It's something that defines them. It's something in and through which they gain their value. Could be a real good thing. And yet when it's challenged, you discover how important it was. It's a real good thing to be a mom. But someday he's getting married. And here she comes. Daughter-in-law. You ever watched moms and daughter-in-laws cling and fight and battle over something that maybe gave them just a little too much value? Man, you've been real successful at work for a real long time. But then all of a sudden, there she is, that new young girl. And she's just a little cooler than you, just a little more current, just a little sharper. And all of a sudden, your position's threatened. When that job defined you, when it was the thing that gave you value, what do you have to do? You have to fight. You have to cling. You've got to hold on with everything you've got. Sabotage her if you need to, right? And we've all seen it happen. Friends, this rich man and Lazarus are the ultimate examples of this. One person who's clinging and fighting and grasping to hold on to their identity and another person whose identity is rooted in God and so they're free. Listen to the story. It's brilliant storytelling by Jesus. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Some people get kind of weirded out about the whole Abraham's side thing. It's just a Jewish way of saying he went to be where Abraham was. He went to be in the same place the father of faith, the friend of God was. That would be in... Heaven, very good, yes. He goes to heaven. Very, not, not that complicated, really. The rich man, it tells us, also died and was buried. See, the rich guy gets a burial. He gets a funeral. Why? Because he has value in the world. He has status and significance. They bury him. Lazarus, they probably just took to the dump, tossed on a pile of garbage, maybe burned him, right? But then, after the burial is over, it says this, In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. You see, even in death, the most dreaded, feared, final circumstance of them all, like the worst thing that can happen to you, right? Well, you know, bad stuff goes down, at least I'm not dead. right? When death happens, it's a pretty bad day. It's a damper. It's a bummer, right? But even in death, because God is at the center of what gives Lazarus value, he is still himself. He's still Lazarus. 
His identity is still intact. He's still Him. He's still the one who, whose value is given by God, even on the other side of this life. But the rich man, he dies, and what does he have? Because the thing he had leaned on, the thing that defined him and gave him value, it's gone. It's no, you don't take the coins with you, right? No one takes that stuff to the other side. And yet, even though he doesn't have a cent to his name anymore, it was so central to his value that he's still clinging, he's still fighting, he's still grabbing a hold of it. Listen to this. So he, that's the formerly rich man, called to him, that's Abraham, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, time out here real quick. One thing people often do when reading this passage is they all of a sudden get sidetracked. They get all consumed with hell. In fact, most of the sermons you'll hear on this passage will focus and be about hell. What is hell really like? How awful is hell? And I'm not saying that hell isn't awful. Um, A lot of imagery to define hell. I don't think it's all literal, but what it all stands for is pretty darn bad. Um, And yet... Almost every scholar I read, and I agree with them, they don't believe that Jesus tells this story to describe hell for us. It's not the point of this parable. He doesn't grab everyone and go, all right, everyone's to huddle up. Let me tell you a little bit about what hell's like. No, 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 no. Who's the main character of this story? No, it's not Lazarus, actually. It's a good guess. You would think that because Lazarus gets a name. The main character of this story is the rich man. This entire story is about the rich man. And the point is, guess what happens to people like the rich man? And furthermore, don't you end up like the rich man, right? It's all about the rich man's experience. He is the main character. This is a story, friends, that reveals to us what it looks like to have a heart like this rich man and where that heart will lead us. Two things I want you to notice about this story. Two things that I never noticed until this week and they just rocked my world. Number one, even in hell, this guy sees himself as a son of Abraham. I mean, he's in hell and he's calling out to Abraham, Father Abraham. He still thinks of himself as a... Now, a son of Abraham was someone who was like faithful to God, who walked with God, who followed in the footsteps of Abraham, Right? That's who sons of Abraham were. Sons of Abraham went to be with Abraham after they died. He did not, and yet he still thinks he's one. He's deceived himself for so long. He's convinced himself, even though it's not been true in his heart, he's convinced himself in his mind that he's the son of Abraham for so long that even now in death, he still thinks of himself this way. That's number one. Number two, even in hell, he still sees himself as the rich guy. He's still clinging to and fighting for and grasping for this 
thing that gave him status and position and value in the world. He still thinks of himself as the rich guy. Listen to what he says to Lazarus. He says, hey, if you can't, I'm thirsty, I'm burning up down here. If you could send, hey Abraham, if you could send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and then bring it down to me, quench my thirst, that would really help me out a lot. How's he thinking about himself? He's, he's thinking about himself in the old way. I'm the rich guy. Lazarus is the beggar. I'm up here. Lazarus is down here. I'm the one with position and status and authority. Lazarus is the servant. He should still be serving me because guess what? I still think I'm better than him, above him. Friends, Jesus, who is simply the master, tells this story in a way that's very sad when you think about it. But at the same time, ironic to the point of almost being funny. It's like such a beautiful satire here. It's, it's amazing. Hey, I mean, it's almost like the, the rich man from hell calls up. Hey, Abraham, can you send Lazarus down to fetch me some water? I'm kind of thirsty. And Abraham's like, is he talking to me? Dude, in case you haven't noticed, you're in hell. Right? Like, Lazarus doesn't... The heaven dudes don't come to serve the dudes in hell. It's not how it works. I don't know what kind of delusional world you're still living in, but it's not how this thing's going to play out, right? And that's Jesus' point here, friends. His point is this, and it's so significant. When extrapolated out into eternity, when, when it's not confined and bound by time, when played out into forever, if we put our ultimate value in something other than the grace of God, it will lead us to a place where we cling to it even when it no longer brings us any joy, satisfaction, or fulfillment. You want a picture of hell? I'm still looking to something to satisfy me that no longer satisfies me at all. In fact, it leaves me empty and wanting, and yet I keep continue to turn to it forever. Friends, this guy still believes he's the son of Abraham and he still sees himself as the rich man. He is clinging to it. He has to. It's who he is. He cannot lose it. One more thing to notice here about him. Something that you may not have noticed on your first read through. He never asks to get out. He's in hell, right? where there's weeping, gnashing of teeth, burning, torture, agony. He uses the word agony. And yet, he never says, hey, can I get out of here? He never repents. He never says, God, I'm so sorry that I valued my wealth and status above your grace. I'm so sorry that I valued your mercy so little that I walked right past Lazarus every single day without seeing him in the way that you see me. God, I blew it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Can I come be with you now? Can I please come to heaven? He never says any of this. He's just content to stay where he is. Friends, sometimes... We have this image that hell is this torture chamber where people are begging to get into heaven and God's like, no, you had your chance and now you must suffer. And he slams the lid and, and he kind of laughs. Ha, 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 They're burning alive down there. Ha, isn't that great? That's kind of our picture of hell and the people are clawing to get there. No, that's not what the Bible teaches us about hell. And this, this passage alludes to it. In Romans 1, we're told this, the only thing God does is he gives people 
what they want. He turns them over to their own desires. He says, you've wanted this to be the center of your life. You've wanted this to be the defining characteristic of your life over and over and over. And I've asked and begged and pleaded for you to let me fill that that slot and to fill that role. You've wanted to create your own value for your own life for so long. And finally, God just says, so be it. So be it. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. And that's why C.S. Lewis says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. It's one of the great tragedies of hell, actually. Friends, where are you tempted to find your value these days? It might be a real good thing. It might be something that feels real safe and secure and even noble, but will it last? Does it have the shoulders to support your life for eternity? Will it endure? Is it leading you towards dependence and reliance and more and more identity in the mercy and grace of God? Or ultimately, when you really step back, does it say, I'll create my own value, God. Thank you very much. I don't need you, Lord. And now the story shifts yet again. Now Jesus will help us understand how our values can truly change. He says, know what you value. Know what your heart truly values. Understand where that will lead you, especially eternally. And then he says, but there's not, it's not just fatalistic. If there's some values in your life, I'm kind of woven deep into your soul that you don't want to be there. There is hope for you. There is hope to change, but understand how our values can truly change. Verse 27. He answered. This is the formerly rich man, now in hell, talking to Abraham. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to, let them, listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Friends, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is capitalizing here on a story that was often told in the ancient world. This is a, a format, a type of story that people used all uh, throughout that day. Like, in our world, we, we have stories that begin this way. Um, Once upon a time, in a land far, far away. Right Now, we're all familiar with that, that story, and it goes a lot of different directions, but it, it kind of carries the same theme, the same plot, and... The same thing is happening here. Jesus is taking a very common story. He's using that story and he's making his own points out of it. And the common story that he steals, the storyline that he nabs, is the storyline where someone from the dead comes back to life to speak to someone who's alive, to warn them about something, to give them guidance and direction towards something, to help them avoid some giant tragedy. This storyline that Jesus uses, it's one we're also familiar with today. The most popular, probably, version of this story that we know is a Christmas carol where someone comes back from the dead to warn someone about some tragedy that is coming their way. And the idea that they believed back then, and that I think we still somewhat believe today, is that 
only if something really dramatic could happen. I mean, there's people who are kind of hesitant to trust God and really value Him and sell out for Him and put all the chips on the table for Him and trust His love and grace and mercy, but only if something really dramatic would happen, if something amazing or miraculous would occur, then people would believe. Then they'd find all their value in God. Then they would value God above all else. If Jacob Marley would just come back and tell us that we are valuing the wrong things in life, then we would change. If only God would give me this, then I'd... If only he could heal this person, reveal himself in this way, then... Or people will say it the other way. God, I prayed and God didn't do this, and so I can't fully believe and trust. Friends, you see, the message here from the rich man is, go save my brothers. If you show up, if someone, if Lazarus goes and comes back from the dead to tell them, then they'll really trust you, Lord. And in, Jesus, in short, Jesus says this, liar, no, you won't. No, they won't. Actually, what he says is this. He says, you, you already know exactly what God values. No more clarity is needed. The scriptures lay it out crystal clear. In the Old Testament alone, there's verse after verse after verse on helping the poor, looking out for the alien, making sure the oppressed and disadvantaged and handicapped in your midst are taken care of. Jesus says, if the scriptures, if the inspired word of God that is very clear does not have the power to impact and change your heart, then some supernatural event isn't going to change it either. I'll never forget a uh, number of years ago, I was living in Southern California and pastoring a church down there. And there's a family that very marginally attended our congregation. Um, they came probably a few times a year at most, two or three times a year. Um, they were loosely connected. They were a family who had a lot of means, a lot of status in the community. Their son, their oldest son, um, kind of their pride, pride and joy, was a professional surfer, kind of a big deal. And, uh, and one day, that son had a skateboarding accident. And in this accident, he incurred um, massive head trauma. Um, really, really bad. And I remember going to the hospital and sitting in the waiting room with those parents as they wept and then standing around his bed and praying for him. And the doctors were saying they weren't sure he was going to make it. And if he did, if he did, he would have uh, seriously diminished mental capacity. He would be extremely brain damaged. That was the best possible scenario hoping that he would make it. And as a pastor, I remember standing and praying and even thinking, Lord, I know you can do anything, but this kid ain't making it. And you get pretty good when you're a pastor uh, of reading between the lines of what doctors are saying and all the doctors were preparing this mom and dad for this young man dying. And yet we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And a few weeks later, miraculously, unexplainably really, this kid got better. He came out of his coma and within weeks was back on his feet, back to normal life. I, I never forget the moment. It was like a month after I had seen him laying in the bed thinking he's going to die. I saw him on a skateboard again. And I, like, it was unbelievable. And the response from these parents um, was what you'd expect. I mean, they were overjoyed. They were overwhelmed. And, and what they said was this. I'll never forget this. This was what we needed. 
This was the wake-up call. We are done being half-hearted with the Lord. We are done being lukewarm in our faith. We are all in. We are going to serve the Lord. We're going to find our value in the Lord. It's going to be all about the Lord. He saved our son. We are 100% for Christ. And how long do you think that lasted? Maybe two months. And then, as things often do, they started to go back to the way they were. And soon, very soon, there was nothing different about their life on this side of that event as there was from their life on this side of that event. And friends, I do not say that in judgment. I say that to illustrate to you and me the capacity that every single one of us here has. I say that to illustrate to you and me the very nature of the human heart. It's fickle. It's fickle. You see, friends, if your heart is not soft to the things of God, no supernatural event, no vision or tragedy or Jacob Marley back from the grave appearance is going to change you. The only thing that will change your heart And what it values is to know how valued you are. And that is exactly what Jesus tells us in the closing verse of this section. The punchline of this entire parable. Like, it comes down to this, and then Jesus just punches him in the nose for the very last sentence. Amazing. The guy was a phenomenal teacher. He just threw it down. Verse 31. He said to him... This is Abraham speaking, right? Jesus' story, using Abraham, Abraham speaking. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. If they won't listen to the scriptures, if they won't listen to the inspired word of God, the word of God that they claim to be inerrant, authoritative, true, then they won't even listen if someone rises from the dead. Who's the one who would rise from the dead in Luke just a few chapters later? Same, yeah, Lazarus. That's a different Lazarus. But Jesus himself, right? So there's two resurrections. That's a good catch, Judy. Actually, I hadn't thought of that, but that's beautiful. Um, actually, when Lazarus, the other Lazarus, rises from the dead, not only do they like not turn around and worship him, they kill him for it, right? You think your heart can get changed when someone rises from the dead? Actually, it'll make it worse. That was just extra. Thank you to Judy for that let me ask you this question friends I'm going to read this verse again if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead and who's the they right who are we in this story who are we in this story you have to put yourself in the story to really understand the point of the story who are we in this story you got it who was it I love it no one got oh, you cheat you were there the first service you sound guy no one in the first service could get it. We're going to walk through it. Are we, are we Abraham? No, good, very good. Are we Jesus? Excellent. We are not Jesus. My wife reminds me of this all the time. Are we the rich man? We're warned, no, no, no. We're warned to not be like the rich man, but the rich man's in hell, right? We're not. We're here on this side of death. We're not the rich man. Are we, this one should be easy, are we Lazarus? No, because we're not in heaven either, right? We hope to be like Lazarus in the sense of what he valued, but he's in heaven. We're still here in this fallen, broken world. You're still here listening to me preach on and on. The preaching's way better in heaven. Um, who are we? 
We're the brothers. We're the ones who are still living, who get this message from Christ back from the dead, who still have a chance to abandon the values of this world and value the things of God. The brothers still have that chance. We still have that chance. Luke says, I'm writing to the brothers, but I'm really writing to you, church. I'm writing to you. And this rich guy says, go tell my brothers not to make the same mistake I made and live for and value the things of this world. Go tell those still living to live for God and to value what he values. And Abraham says, they won't listen. And the rich man says, yes, they will. They'll listen if someone comes back from the dead. And Luke is saying, someone has. Someone has. Someone has defeated death, come back from the grave, offered us new life a life of mercy and grace. It's Jesus. See, this gospel is written post-resurrection, right? Luke writes this gospel to the brothers, to us, to those of us who live on the other side of death and resurrection. Friends, and what he's telling us is this, until this event, the resurrection of Jesus' event defines you, until you find your ultimate value in it, you will always in some way be like the rich man scrambling around, looking for something in this world to give your life and existence value. Friends, you will never truly change what you value until you understand just how valued you are. Valued so much that the God of the universe came to earth, became a human being, suffered death, death on a cross, and then defeated death and rose again. You see, when the gospel, when that truth, the Jesus resurrection truth, defines your life, now, now you are free. You don't have to scramble around and find something to, def- to give yourself value anymore. You don't have to defend and protect and cling to the things that make you, you. You know why you're you? Because God loves you so much that he died for you and that he rose for you. That's what makes you, you. When that reality, that gift, that grace really settles into your heart, you'll never be fooled into thinking your core value comes from anything you do or have or have accomplished or anything that this world can ever tell you or give you. You'll be empowered to have a heart that offers the grace of God to everyone you meet, to every Lazarus you encounter. So friends, this morning... I know it's a little late. The good news is this. This is the last part of the sermon, of the service. Like there's no closing song even. And we've done communion. So I'm about to send you um, off to your Father's Day brunch. But as you go, I want you to think about this. What is it that I truly value in my heart? What is it that my heart is actually seeking to use in this world to give me value other than the grace of God? Get real honest about that. And then... Think about what that looks like. Play that out over time. Think about who that makes you. And then finally, understand the free gift you have in Christ to be a person valued, not because of anything you do or have or because anyone likes you, but because God of the universe loves you. He died for you and he rose for you. Go with that freedom. Go with that gift. Go with that power. Go today on Father's Day with that gospel. Father, thank you for this morning for the amazing truth that it offers us, for the gift that we have in Jesus and for the freedom it gives us. May we live in that freedom as your people. 
We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.